excited to bring to you guys the word this morning. Uh, it's been a while since I've been before you guys to be able to open up God's word. So this is an exciting time for me right now as we uh, continue looking at Jonah uh, for these next couple weeks. Uh, so it's my privilege today to bring you Jonah chapter 2. Um, the name of my message this morning is Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Salvation Belongs to the Lord. And as I began, I wanted to talk about uh, just one of the experiences that I had whenever I was growing up. I grew up in a, in a big city. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, that's where most of my developmental years were spent. But as I got older, we eventually moved from Fort Lauderdale to just outside of Gainesville. And as a consequence of that, in so many ways, despite growing up in a big city, I feel like I'm an, an outdoorsman at heart. And one of the things that I was able to do to kind of um, foster that uh, ability to just be an outdoorsman was just when I was 19, I began to work at a summer camp. And this was a summer camp primarily for sixth and 12th grade students. Um, and it's a camp that's located just south of Ocala National Forest. Um, it's situated um, right next to this massive lake. And so at this camp, what we do every year is we bring hundreds of students from all over the state of Florida, hundreds of youth leaders from all over the state of Florida uh, together, uh, just to experience the Lord um, and to grow to know him better. And one night, a few years ago at this camp, me and a couple of the other camp leaders were driving around in our golf carts um, as we normally did when we would patrol at night. Uh, so this was about 11.45 or so. This was about our lights out time. And as we're driving around, um, eventually we see these shadows moving next to the lake. And we realized that that's unusual. That, that shouldn't be happening. What's, what's going on out there? And what was going on was there were actually three students who were walking next to the lake trying to sneak around camp. And so what we decided to do was we decided to, to apprehend these students and to get them back to their youth leaders. And so we devised this plan that we would take one of the guys who was on the golf cart, get them off the golf cart, and have them come up behind the students. And then the rest of us on our golf carts would drive around to the front of where they were going, and we would uh, come upon them and tell them to get back into their cabin. And so as we did this, we came around on the golf carts and the students dropped to the ground and they tried to hide from us. They tried to evade us, uh, which obviously wasn't going to work. But the youth leader came up behind them on the other side as they did that. He was pretty fast and quiet. He came up on the other side of them um, and he like made this loud declaration uh, to let, him, uh, let them know that he was there. And when he did that, we heard something moving in the bushes next to the lake. And then that thing like slid down and hit the lake with a big splash. And that was this massive alligator. And what that reminded us of was just the fact that on this nearly 4,000 acre lake, there are hundreds, if not over a thousand alligators. This lake is, is massive. And the reason why we don't let the students out at night is because there's all types of dangerous animals that creep around the camp at night. And it's much safer to, for them to be in their cabins than to be out and about. You know, we've seen poisonous snakes and we've seen bears and we've seen all types of things at the camp over these years. And as you can imagine, when that happened, when this massive alligator like hit the water with this big splash, that really got our attention. Uh, that really um, arrested um, our attention in that moment. And what that reminds me of is just the fact that there are so many things in our lives that get our attention. And God is a God who loves to have our focus and our attention. And I don't know if you know this, but God will do whatever he has to to get your attention. You see, the Lord will send an angel to wrestle you. He'll walk on water to get to you. 
He'll part the Red Sea to show you his power. God will stop you while you're on your way to persecute people just to get your attention. And he'll even send a gigantic fish to take your focus off of yourself and onto him. You see, what God will do is God will do whatever he has to to get your attention. Ray Ortland has said these words. The Lord appointed a great fish, Jonah 1, 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, Jonah 3, 1. God appointed a worm, Jonah 4, 7. God appointed a scorching east wind, Jonah 4, 8. The Lord has more ways of confronting us than we have ways of evading him. You see, God will do whatever he has to, to get your attention. And that's one of the messages that God communicates to us here in Jonah chapter two, is that strong desire to have the focus and the attention of his people. So look with me again at Jonah chapter two, verses one and two. The word says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. My first point this morning, and um, you may be grateful to know this, I only have two. My first point this morning is Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed. And the sub point is pray despite guilt. Pray despite guilt. And we're going to see that in verse 2. What we see Jonah doing right here in this text after being tossed overboard and being engulfed in the belly of this fish is we see Jonah pray. Previously, Jonah was running away from God, but now he's been humbled and he's turning to God. He's submitting to God in prayer. And every follower of God needs to hear from God through his word and needs to speak to God through prayer. And Jonah has finally come to this place of humility. He's finally receptive to the words of the Lord. And he turns to God in prayer. You remember what happened last Sunday, right? So last Sunday, as Kevin was preaching, he talked to us about Jonah chapter 1. And it starts off by telling us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And what Jonah did was he just totally rejected God's word. God told him to go to Nineveh, and instead he went in the complete opposite direction of where God said to go. He was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, the text tells us in chapter 1. And then God hurled this storm upon the water, and God brought all of the people that Jonah was with into this great amount of distress. And eventually, they decided they were going to take Jonah and throw him overboard after trying to do everything other than that. They eventually decided to take Jonah and just throw him overboard. And when Jonah hit the water, he eventually was swallowed by this massive, gigantic fish. And so it took all of those circumstances, all of those situations for Jonah to go through before he finally came to this place of humility and before he finally came to this place where God had humbled him to such an extent that he turned to him in prayer. And so that's what we see Jonah doing in this chapter. We see Jonah in the beginning of this chapter turning to God in prayer. He's finally seeking the Lord. And what you would imagine is in this moment, Jonah, after being tossed overboard and being swallowed by this gigantic fish, 
you would think that he would just be like wrecked with this guilt. Here he was fleeing from God, doing the complete opposite of what God said do. You would think that he would just be overcome by his guilt, but he's not so overcome that he refuses to pray to the Lord. We see that Jonah prays despite his guilt. And his distress, which he brought upon himself because of his rebellion, he doesn't let that guilt crush him and cause him not to pray. You see, no surprisingly, Jonah prays despite his guilt. And one of the things that I love about the book of Jonah, I hope that you love this as well. One of the things that I love about the book of Jonah is that Jonah is so relatable to us. Like we get him. We understand where he's coming from. You know, have you ever run away from God? Have you ever known exactly what God wanted you to do? And instead of doing that, you went in the complete opposite direction of God's will. Have you ever rebelled against something that God said to do when you knew that his command was clear and yet you decided to do what you wanted? You see, Jonah is so relatable to us because we get this. Sometimes I think that we get to this place where we look down on Jonah because like he heard God's word. You know, the chapter starts off in chapter one by saying the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But like for us, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have the completed word of God before us. God has completely revealed all of his intentions and desires for every single person on this planet. We have more than what Jonah had. And that doesn't necessarily cause us to be more obedient. That doesn't necessarily cause us to follow God's commands more precisely with this increased revelation and this increased ability through the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't look down on Jonah because he rebelled against God. We should identify with Jonah. Like this is why God gave us his story so that we can connect with him and hopefully do the thing that he did at last instead of the thing that he did at first. You see, Jonah, despite his guilt, he turns to God in, in like manner, we, despite our rebellion against God and our transgressions and our sins, need to turn to the Lord. You see, we can relate to Jonah. You see, as he's in the belly of this great fish, and he feels the weight of his decision to flee. You know, he's seeing the impending disaster that's coming upon the sailors and himself. He doesn't let that crush him. He was guilty. He was guilty because of his disobedience. And there are people right here, right now, under the sound of my voice, who feel that same weight of guilt. You feel that same sense of just guilt and just distress over your decisions. And what God's message is to you this morning is that if you are one of his children, he'll answer your cry no matter when you give it. He'll answer you despite your guilt. You should take heart from Jonah. And you should take heart from Psalm 107, verses 10 through 15, which gives us this exact same idea. The word says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death 
and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. You see, this psalm tells us that these people were rightly guilty because of what they had done, and yet they turned to God, and God in his faithfulness, which God is always faithful, God in his faithfulness was able to reveal himself to them and show them his love despite their rebellion. That's what God does with Jonah, and that's what God wants to do with you. If your disobedience is the reason for your distress, turn from that disobedience, turn from your guilt, and embrace God, call out to God, and he will hear you. God is mighty to save. He's a deliverer. Paul tells us this. Paul, Paul says this in, in Romans 5.20. He says, where, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Um, or to, to put it in maybe more clear words in the, the CSB, he says, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. God's grace is always stronger than our sin. So we saw Jonah pray despite his guilt, but we also see Jonah pray despite his affliction. Notice this in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. We see Jonah praying despite his affliction. God is not willing to let disobedience go uncorrected. He was displeased with Jonah's disobedience. The calamity that befell Jonah and the sailors was a clear display of the judgment and the affliction of God. And nothing puts us in a lower state than for us to, to have this mindset that God is angry with us, but God is displeased with us because of something that we've done. In those moments, we so frequently think, well, there's no point in praying to God. God's the one that's upset with me. God's the one who doesn't like this thing that I'm doing. And yet, when we look at Jonah, he dared to ask the God who was upset with him for going the opposite direction for his help. You see, when we look at Jonah, we see that the same God who sovereignly orchestrated his being thrown into the water heard his prayer and performed a miracle to save him. Even during those times where God is displeased with us, he is never simply punishing us for our actions. His punishment is always redemptive. His affliction is always restorative. Difficulty is redemptive. It's not purely punitive from God. He answers his children despite his sovereign affliction. And this is what Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 tell us. Hebrews 13 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. One of the ways that God affirms to you that you are one of his is through his discipline. Do you ever wonder why you just can't get away with anything? Why it seems like so frequently you're, there are consequences for your actions, even if sometimes those consequences are something as simple as just a nagging conscience. We oftentimes wonder why God, you know, just allows all of these different things to come into our lives whenever we rebel against him. 
And this is God bringing us back into line with himself. Child of God, that is God at work in you and around you to bring you back into line with himself. Because he loves you, he'll correct you. And sometimes we think of a total freedom as the ultimate act of love. We think that freedom is just what we ultimately need and desire because, you know, we, we live in this country, for example, and obviously freedom is a great value within our borders. But freedom without constraints is evil. It's not love to let a child run into the street whenever you know that there are cars going back and forth, but it is love to correct that child and to bring that child into a place where they can be safe. Too much freedom is harmful and a lack of discipline and affliction in the lives of believers is harmful. Tim Keller said these words, modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. God's discipline, his restrictions on our freedoms, even his afflictions are always for our good. We see Jonah pray despite his affliction. He prays despite literally being in the belly of this great fish. But not only do we see that, but we also see Jonah pray despite his circumstances. He prays despite his circumstances. Can you imagine the circumstances that Jonah found himself in in this moment? Here he was in the sea and in the belly of this great fish, and the circumstances in this moment could not have been more tenuous. And what this reminds me of is this reminds me of um, back during 1945, uh, the USS Indianapolis uh, was out to sea. Um, this was really close to the war being over. We're still fighting against uh, Japan. We had already defeated Germany. Um, and the ship's out to sea, and they're feeling like everything's fine. You know, like the war is almost over. Everything is totally at a place of safety to some extent and comfort. We, we had almost finished defeating Japan. And there was a sailor on that ship named Tony King, and he was among hundreds of sailors who were in a really difficult situation. What had happened was their ship as it was sailing uh, was hit by torpedoes and eventually it was sank. And so he and some of his fellow sailors were all swimming in the ocean, trying to cling to life, literally. They were hopeful that just over the horizon, there would be safety and comfort. And at 94 years old, he tells this story that he just describes himself floating in the Philippine Sea, and he uh, saw sharks patrolling underneath him in the water. He could see their figures go back and forth as plainly as we can see the sky above us now. And so many of his friends were lost that day. But Tony King survived. 
He lived long enough to be rescued. His circumstances that day seemed to be impossible, and I'm sure that there are times where he was doubtful that they would ever be saved as they were floating in the water. He found himself in so many ways to be just like Jonah, tossed about in the ocean, uncertain of what would happen next, hopeful, clinging to life, seeking salvation. And when we look at the prophet, he doesn't let his circumstances keep him away from his God. You see, in verses 5 and 6, the prophet describes the water closing around him. He talks about the weeds enveloping his head. And his circumstances were dire. This was a terrifying scene. And so often, we think that in difficult times, people turn to God. But that's not always true. Certainly there are times where people turn to God in the middle of a storm, but frequently those who don't trust in God when things are good also don't trust in God when things are going badly. If difficulty always brought people to God, then there should be more people right now trusting in Jesus. There should be more people in our world believing in him. But we don't always see that. You know, think back to a year ago during this week, during this time. A year ago, this week, this time, COVID was becoming more of a reality in our lives. The NBA has shut down. Multiple people like Tom Hanks were getting COVID and it was seemingly spreading all over the country. And this was shutdown week. And during that time period where we felt like COVID was just this, this very present danger, this, this impending doom and disaster that was going to take out potentially hundreds of thousands of people um, immediately, as we thought back then, during that really scary time, we didn't see people in the next month or in the next two months turn to God. We didn't see this massive revival, despite the fact that we literally had impending disaster upon us, because people don't always turn to God when things are difficult. That's not always the way that that works out. You see, so oftentimes when things are difficult, what we instead do is we turn inward and we try to fix the problems and the issues that we have ourselves. And instead, what God has called us to do is to turn outward and to seek him and his people to help us in our distress. You see, Jonah doesn't respond in the way that we think he would. He doesn't let his initial disobedience keep him from God. You see, he's a follower of God, and when his circumstances became difficult, he turned to the Lord. And you may find yourself right now in circumstances so difficult that you can't see any other way out of your situation. And that's the time where God calls us to remember him. That's the time that God calls us to turn to him for salvation, to remember the Lord. You see, what Jonah knew in that moment was that with God, all things are possible. Mark 10, 27. It was God's grace that saved Jonah. It was God's appointed means of salvation, this great fish that would come upon him and swallow him whole. And he acknowledges that grace in verse 6 when he says, You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when we call out to God, he will deliver us from our circumstances. And so we see Jonah pray. He prayed despite his guilt 
and he prayed despite his affliction, and he prayed despite his circumstances. But we don't just see Jonah's activities, but we also hear God's response to his activities. And so my second point is this point, God answered. God answered. Look at the last part of verse 6, where it says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. You see, Jonah acknowledges that God receives our pleas. My first sub-point is that God receives our pleas. Just when things were at their worst for the prophet, when his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. And at the 11th hour, when there's no other help available, in that critical moment where, where only something supernatural can step in and intervene to be able to bring us to a place of safety and security, in that moment for Jonah, God stepped in. And in that moment in our lives, that's when God steps in, when the only person who can receive the credit is himself. And the only person who can get the honor for what is going to come about as a form of salvation is him. This is so often the case with us. Our God is faithful to help us at just the right time. And God is always on time. I hope that you leave here today with that hope that God will be on time in your life. Know that God will receive your plea and he is receptive when you call out to him. But not only does God receive our pleas, but my second sub-point is that God restores through love. God restores through love. The prophet sees through these false idols in verse 8. Notice in verse 8, he says these words. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. You see, the prophet sees through all these false idols and perhaps he's remembering the sailors as they were crying out to their fake gods and asking their fake gods to save them who could give no response, who could give no answer. Maybe he's remembering what they did in that moment. Whenever he, in this moment, says, those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope. You see, he contrasts this crying out to that which is false and fake, that which cannot save, to the real God. And he says that he is not pursuing an idol, but he's pursuing the true God. John Piper said these words, God taught Jonah that if you leave the Lord, you leave mercy. And so he's trusting in the only real God in this moment. And the amazing thing about this God is that he is full of love. You see that? You see that steadfast love that he references? You see, it was love that motivated God to send Jonah to the Ninevites. And it was love that motivated God to throw the storm on the water to arrest the prophet in his tracks. And it was love that was going to save Jonah in the water. 
You see, what the word tells us is that God is love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And he is always loving towards those who love his son. Do you want the steadfast love that Jonah references in this verse? You have to turn to God. He is not just full of love, but God, Jesus, is love in the flesh. And one of the places that the Lord communicates that to us in Christ is actually in John chapter 8. And you may remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is at the temple, and he's at the temple, connecting with the people, probably teaching the people, and this group of Jewish people come in, and they bring this woman who was caught in adultery, and they set her before him. And what they wanted Jesus to do in that moment was they wanted Jesus to condemn her and lose favor with the people because he would look like he's just overly harsh. Um, he's not a prophet that's worth following. And what they wanted Jesus to do in that moment was not to condemn her and thus to lose favor with God. Because if he didn't obey God's word, when it says clearly in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, then clearly he wasn't a prophet to be followed. Either way, they were fine. If Jesus condemned her, perfect. The people will leave him. If Jesus doesn't condemn her, perfect. He's forsaken God, and they shouldn't follow him for that reason either. So either way, they were perfectly fine with his decision. You see, this woman violated God's commandment. She broke the law. In John chapter 8, the word tells us that they were trying to bring a charge against Christ in this moment. They were trying to, to pin him up against the wall. They were trying to bind Jesus. This woman was disobedient, breaking God's law. She was much like Jonah is in this moment. Both of them, both her and Jonah, should have received the full punishment for their disobedience and their rebellion. But both of them instead encountered love. Both of them instead encountered him who is full of steadfast love. While running from God, they ran into God. Jesus, full of love and compassion, calls the woman's accusers to cast the stone if they themselves were without sin. He calls them to account, and he reminds them that all of them are full of sin. He was communicating this idea that Paul would express later when Paul says there is none righteous. No, not one. What Jesus does in that moment is he forgives her and he restores her. He loved her. He loved Jonah. God loves you. Christ's love is steadfast, is what he says. It's constant. It won't stop. It never ends. And when Jesus came and surrendered his life in your place on the cross, he did that as the ultimate display of his love. All you have to do in response to Jesus's love is to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's what Romans 10, 9 tells us. There are people here today who need to, to turn to Jesus for the very first time and trust in him 
for salvation. Trust in his steadfast love. Will you surrender like Jonah did? Will you not forsake God's steadfast love? We have to turn from our idols and embrace Jesus. But not only do we see God restoring through love, but we also see that God redeems the destitute. God redeems the destitute. My last point this morning is that God redeems the destitute. The prophet was thankful for his salvation. He worshiped God for his deliverance. He gave that sacrifice that all of us should offer. He gave the sacrifice of thanksgiving and of praise to God. He promised to pay God that which he vowed, to pay God that which he had promised. He was going to give God the fulfillment of his own words. And we can imagine that when Jonah says, I will pay what I have vowed, we can imagine that one of the things that he vowed in this moment was that he was going to fulfill God's command and actually go to the Ninevites and preach the message that God sent him to preach. Next week, Espy is going to walk us through that as we look at Jonah chapter 3, what that message was and the response that God gave. But we can imagine one of those things that he promised was he's going to go and proclaim the message. And what we see here is that God will save us, but that salvation isn't always pretty. Saul, who would later become Paul in the book of Acts, one time to be saved, he had to be lowered through this crack in the wall in a basket. And even one of the great people who was mightily used in the history of the church, Martin Luther, he was at one moment walking and he came upon this terrible lightning storm. And I'm sure in that moment when this lightning storm popped up, he wasn't thinking that this is great. No, this is difficult. But God would use that lightning storm to eventually lead him into the priesthood, which would eventually lead him to Christ, lead him to Jesus. Our salvation isn't always pretty. Sometimes we're lowered through a basket. Sometimes we're coming through a lightning storm. But God's salvation is sure. It is on its way. It will be present. It's not always pretty. At various times in your life, God will save you. But sometimes he'll save you in the belly of a great fish. Sometimes that salvation will be difficult and exhausting and trying, but it is God's appointed means of our deliverance. Your life won't always be easy, but God always will rescue his people. He loves his sheep. He will keep you. If you genuinely call out to him and know him and seek him. And I love these words that Charles Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said this. He said, what a great word that word salvation is. It includes the cleansing of our conscience from all past guilt. The delivery of our soul from all those propensities to evil, which so now strongly predominate in us. It takes in, in fact, the undoing of all that Adam did. Salvation is the total restoration of man from his fallen estate, and yet it is something more than that. For God's salvation fixes our standing more secure than it was before we fell. It finds us broken in pieces by the sin of our first parent, defiled, stained, 
accursed. It first heals our wounds. It removes our diseases. It takes away our curse. It puts our feet upon the rock, Christ Jesus. And having thus done, at last it lifts our heads far above all principalities and powers to be crowned forever with Jesus Christ, the King of heaven. You see, the question for you this morning is, have you given your life over to this great God? Have you come to the place that Jonah came to in this moment of surrender to him? This place of humility that he found himself in. This brokenness that refuses to let anything get between you and God. Not, a, not an ocean, not a great fish. There is nothing, not his guilt not his circumstances, not his affliction. There is nothing that stops him from approaching God because he knows God's character. And that's what he's going to say in a couple weeks in chapter four. He's going to say, God, I didn't want to go there and preach to them because I knew that you were a God of compassion. I knew that you were a God full of love. And if I went there to preach this message, you're going to do what you always do. You're always good and merciful and steadfast in your love. He knows God's heart. Do you know God's heart? You see, this God that we're describing this morning, he is the reason why we have Jonah's story in the first place. You see, Jonah isn't the hero of his own story. And that's, that's a little bit strange, right? Like the book is called Jonah. We oftentimes think of Jonah as like the hero of his story. Uh, but many of you know this story, and so you know how the story is going to end. And you know how the story began. And clearly, Jonah is not the hero of this story. Clearly, he's not this great figure uh, that we should perfectly follow in everything that he did. No, instead, God is the hero of this story. God is the person who saves. When this book begins, it begins by saying, and the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And when it ends, the very last person who speaks is God. You see, God is the hero of this story. God is the main purpose for this entire situation because he wants us to see that salvation belongs to the Lord. When he says in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, he wants us to see him above all things. That's what he wants your focus to be on right now in this moment is him above all things. To know that salvation belongs to him. Your life is ultimately about him. You exist to bring glory and honor and magnificence to the greatness of who God is. And all of this is his means of bringing us to himself. Don't miss what God is doing by showing us this fantastic story of a man being swallowed by a great fish. And don't miss what God is doing by what he wants to do in your life. Has God spoken to you today? My encouragement to you is to heed his word. Don't let the word return void, but heed God's word. Remember that God will do whatever he has to do to get your attention. He wants to love you fully as you lay down your life on his behalf. Will you pray with me now?
Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We are so grateful, so grateful, God, to know that we are not alone in our struggle. And we're not alone in what we go through in our difficulties and our circumstances. God, we're so thankful that you gave us Jonah, imperfect as he is, to let us know that you will love even wretches like us, that you'll never let us go, that you'll always save us, that you're present no matter what. Jesus, we thank you for loving us the way that you do. We ask right now that as we enter into this time of communion, that we would just reflect on you. And we would reflect on what you've done for us. All the times that you've saved us in the past, from physical circumstances, in our spiritual lives. God, we remember how great you are to save. And we ask right now that you would remind us of your shed blood, and your broken body given so that we might have eternal life. Lord, as we take this juice and as we take this wafer as symbolic of you dying on the cross for us, I pray that we would just glorify your name and we offer you, God, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and we offer you this morning the sacrifice of praise. Jesus, you are so good to us. You are so good to your people and so faithful to us, God. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to trust in you. All good and all gracious God, may you find our sacrifices this morning to be acceptable in your sight. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.